Hello, and welcome to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall, a ministry of Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bible and join us, as together we seek to grow in our daily walk with the Lord. In coming to the ninth chapter of Romans, you arrive at the second major division within this epistle, where the Apostle Paul began to write about the nation of Israel. Many of the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and thus one of the questions that would naturally be raised was, well, what happens to all the promises then that God made to Israel? What about the covenants that were made with our forefathers? Are they now to be nullified, no longer in existence? To answer these questions, Paul goes back and he traces the history of the nation in the past. And then he looks at the nation in the present. And then he considers the future of the nation of Israel. And in so doing, he highlights the sovereignty of God at work and reveals that God knows the beginning from the end, and he is working all things according to his will and purpose. Paul began by pointing to the life of the patriarchs. He revealed that Abraham had two sons. Their names were Ishmael and Isaac. But only one of the sons, Isaac, was the one who would receive the blessing. Then he looked at Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, and how that before they were born, Jacob was to receive the blessing. The Lord declared his selection of Jacob before either one of these boys had the opportunity to manifest any characteristics, make any decisions, or even live their lives. But after they were born, you begin to read the story about them, what the Bible records you understand a little bit better why it was that God made the decision that he made. However, with our limited, finite, human perspective and understanding, it would be easy to conclude somehow that God was unfair to make his choice before they were born. And it is with that backdrop that Paul asks the rhetorical question found in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Or to put it another way, is God unfair? Paul answers the question he asks with the strongest negative possible, certainly not. God cannot be unjust or unfair because that would be entirely against his nature and character. It is interesting, however, to note how quickly men are ready to accuse God of not being fair. It's also worth noting that sometimes those who question the fairness of God are the same ones that deny the existence of God. Yet all of us, in looking at life in a fallen world, we have seen injustice. We have observed good people, in our estimation, suffering. And we've seen 
wicked people prospering. And we ask the question, why would God allow that? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that an evil person could prosper. How can that be fair? Of course, the devil has been challenging the righteousness of God from the very beginning of man's existence in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. The devil's basic premise was God is not fair. God is holding something back from you, Eve. See, see, he's put that tree there knowing that if you eat it, then you're going to be like him. He's really concerned about this, and he's unfair. And so Eve, of course, took of the fruit, and Adam did as well. Is there unrighteousness with God? The answer is certainly not. But in order to illustrate his point that God is not unjust nor unfair in his dealings with man, Paul points to other examples found in the Old Testament. And he will look at God's sovereignty, first of all, in how that God pardoned erring Israel, and secondly, how he punished erring Pharaoh. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Paul reaches back to an Old Testament illustration taken from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And it was there that Moses, you remember, had gone up onto Mount Sinai where he was to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. Spent 40 days up on the mountain. And while on the mountain, down below, the people were waiting for Moses to return. They began to worship an idol in the form of a golden calf. Now keep in mind, that's right after they had said to the Lord, all that the Lord says to us, we will do. That didn't last very long. They had broken the first two commandments before they ever got started. But following this incident of idolatry, 3,000 people died. Moses then went back up onto Mount Sinai to pray and intercede, asking God to show the people mercy. At that time, the nation had forfeited any claim to the mercy of God. Nevertheless, in Exodus 33, having heard the prayer of Moses, the Lord responded and he said, I will have mercy. On whomever I will have mercy, I will have compassion. On whomever I will have compassion. He did not say, I will judge and annihilate whoever I will judge and annihilate. So there. He didn't say that. He said, I'll have mercy and compassion even when it was clearly undeserved. This mercy and compassion that was given to Israel, even after they had turned away from God, that delivered them out of their bondage. It wasn't because, as verse 16 says, the one who wills or him who runs. That's another way of saying it wasn't based on human merit that God showed them this mercy that they didn't deserve. God showed them mercy because he's merciful. And in his sovereignty, he has the right to show mercy to whom he desires to show mercy. And I'm thankful for that this morning because I don't deserve God's mercy and yet he has given to me mercy. Israel didn't deserve the mercy of God for what they had done. You and I don't deserve the mercy of God for what we have done. And yet God offers mercy to us 
today. He shows mercy to anyone who will receive it. He has that freedom to do so because he is sovereign, because he is God, he can be merciful. The Bible tells us in Psalm 62, verse 12, Alas, to you, O Lord, belong mercy. Psalm 100, in verse 5, says, For the Lord is good, and his mercy is everlasting. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. And then, of course, in Titus chapter 3, It says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Folks, listen, God desires to show you mercy. He's a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. I have learned not to pray, God, give me what I deserve. (laughs) Lord, give me justice. I pray that for other people, but not for me. I think of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Remember, they went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee began to pray this eloquent prayer, talking about all of the amazing things that he had done and just parading all of his religious accomplishments before the Lord. And then it says that the tax collector was there, and standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says that man went away forgiven. Paul is emphasizing, it doesn't matter who you are, what your status is, what you've done in your life that you're ashamed of, God will still show you mercy Because of his sovereignty, he is merciful. And yet, there is another side to this truth concerning God's sovereignty that is equally difficult to understand from the human perspective, and that is this. God is able to harden a person who rejects him. And this example is seen in the person of Pharaoh. Look at what it says in verse 17. For the scripture says... To Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. First of all, make note of what Paul writes, for the scripture says. That's significant. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't his own line of reasoning. The burden of proof is placed squarely on the word of God. By using scripture as his proof and evidence, it will silence the objector even if it doesn't convince them. And again, this is important to me. There are occasions when people may be upset with me. Because I have said, the scripture says, well, I don't like that. I didn't write it. God wrote it. So your battle isn't with me, it's with the author. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just delivering, here it is. It's between you and God. The person says, well, I don't like the fact that it says I shouldn't live with my girlfriend. I'm sorry. You know, the Bible talks, that's what God says. 
He says fornication is a sin. You shouldn't be involved with it. What are you doing? Well, I don't like the fact that, the, well, your argument is not with me. It's not with, it's with the scriptures. It's with God. And that is an argument, friend, that you won't win. Paul says, this is what the Bible says. And as believers in Jesus Christ today in this world, we need to be saying lovingly but truthfully, this is what the Bible says. I know that's not popular with today's opinion. I know that's not necessarily something that the culture applauds or appreciates. But we didn't say it. We just represent it. This is what it says. And you can either receive it or you can Reject it. Paul says the scripture says, what does it say? He reaches back once again to the book of Exodus and he looks at Pharaoh. And by using Pharaoh as an example, he reveals another side of God's sovereign will and purpose. At the conclusion of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jacob who was the father, founding father of the nation of Israel. He and his descendants had moved down to Egypt because of a famine, the Bible says. And they were reunited with his son Joseph, who was now second in command to the Pharaoh. While dwelling in Egypt, the descendants of Jacob grew numerically. Eventually, Joseph died. And no longer was he in power. And the new Pharaoh, it says, didn't know Joseph. Exodus 1 tells us, and yet he recognized the numerical strength in the growth of the people of Israel, and so he made them slaves. And the Bible says during their time of bondage, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and made their life bitter with hard bondage. During their time of bondage in distress, the people cried out to God for a deliverer. God, send us someone to take us out of this slavery. And year after year went by, but eventually God raised up a deliverer whose name was Moses. Now think about this. Moses and the Pharaoh that he confronted had history together. These men began their lives in the same place. Both were reared in a pagan household of the Egyptian sovereign. Both received an education in pagan schools of idolatrous priests there in Egypt. Both enjoyed a standard of living that far exceeded the mud pit experience of the slaves. Both were heirs of royal privileges. However, their paths diverged when God intervened in the life of Moses. The Bible actually gives us a New Testament commentary on what happened to Moses there in Exodus. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for the reward." Moses saw his people suffering, and he chose to identify with them. Now, his first attempt, the Bible tells us in Exodus, to be the deliverer, he failed miserably. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and he killed him. And then he fled for his life out into the desert where the Lord kept him and devoted the next 40 years to transforming Moses' character, and then brought him back as the deliverer 40 years later. But Pharaoh, on the other hand, continued his privileged existence in the palace of Egypt. 
and became its sovereign ruler. He spent 40 years living as he had always done, as a pagan. And when the proper time arrived for the next stage in God's redemptive plan, he brought these two men face to face. And Moses demanded the release of the Israelites, but Pharaoh refused, claiming the right of sovereignty over them. And as the story of deliverance continues, the Lord began to send a series of plagues to loosen the grip of the Pharaoh in order to let the people go. Yet instead of repenting and letting the people go, what does the Bible say? He hardened his heart. There are three words in the book of Exodus, in the Hebrew language that are used for hardening. The first means to make insensible, found in Exodus 7. The next word, found in Exodus 10, means to make heavy or unimpressionable. The third word used means to be immovable, to solidify, to stiffen. This hardening process referred to in Exodus at least 15 times. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what you're able to see clearly is the progression within Pharaoh's life. God gave Pharaoh a chance, repeated chances, to let the people go. And yet, he hardened his heart. He became, first of all, insensible. Then, unimpressionable. And eventually, he came to the place where he was immovable. So from the Exodus account, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened before Aaron and Moses arrived and showed up with the plagues and the power of God. And after each, listen, the first five plagues, the hardening of the heart was Pharaoh hardening his own heart in resistance to God. It wasn't until after the sixth plague when we read, as Pharaoh was still resisting, that God honored the decision that he made and solidified his hardened heart. Pharaoh dedicated himself to evil in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. This was Pharaoh's personal choice. He chose evil. God didn't choose it for him. However, the Lord did harden him. That is, he solidified his resolve to pursue the evil deeply embedded within his heart. God honored the decision of the rebellious leader solidified it. Folks, it's very important to understand when you are considering, studying the sovereignty of God, that we are not to assume that God arbitrarily and directly forced upon Pharaoh an obstinate and stubborn resistance to himself. You can never lay the evil of man at the door of God. God doesn't cause men to do evil. God simply brought Pharaoh to a place where he had to confirm the decision that was already in his heart. Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent and get right with the Lord. Even his own people said, Pharaoh, this is the hand of God. God is in this, the, the real God, not the ones we serve. You need to stop this madness. And he would not listen. So God honored the decision that he made, and yet God's purposes in his sovereign will were still accomplished and brought to pass. Pharaoh is a prime example of people today. 
God gives them opportunity to turn from sin, to repent. Even at times, may send a few plagues, as it were, into your life to get your attention. And you can resist his love. You can resist his mercy, his grace. But at some point, God honors the decision that a person makes and will and even give them over to what they're pursuing and what they've wanted. I don't know where that line is. I don't want to get anywhere close to it. But, but the Bible reveals. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, listen, today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because what happens when you don't listen to the voice of the Spirit drawing you, when you reject the Lord seeking to save you. You know what happens? You become insensible. Then you become unimpressionable. And at some point, you're immovable. God in his sovereignty, however, has the ability to show mercy. And in his sovereignty, he has the ability to honor a decision a person makes against him through hardening. These are the examples of God's sovereign will. And now, Paul gives the explanation of God's sovereign will. Because there are those, maybe even some here today, who would read this and say, I object. Well, what do you object? Look at verse 19. This was something that he anticipated, something that he had heard often. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? This doesn't make sense, Paul. I mean, explain this to me. How, listen, this is the reasoning of the objectors. If Pharaoh was accomplishing God's purposes, how can God find fault with Pharaoh? If God is sovereign, then it must be impossible to resist his will. And therefore, man can't be held responsible if he's lost. How can God blame man then for his actions? What does Paul respond with? You ready for this? He doesn't answer the question. Paul, oh, come on, man. He doesn't answer the question. Why? Because he's dealing with the sovereignty of God that goes beyond man's ability to fully comprehend. He simply leaves the question unanswered, and there is no answer that the finite man can reason out or understand. He doesn't answer the question. But what he does say in verse 20 is this. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? As the creation of the loving creator God, we can never sit in a place of judgment and accuse God of being unjust because we don't fully understand all of his ways. Don't create God in your image. God is not like you. He's not like me. He is altogether completely different and separate than us. He is God. And if we attempt to judge the validity of God's actions, it would imply that we are more righteous than God. To sit in judgment of what God does or how he moves would be to say that man is somehow wiser than God. We aren't. There was a man who questioned God, 
had a lot of questions for God. His name was Job. By the way, it's not Job, it's Job, <laughs> the Old Testament. But Job suffered tremendously. You remember, if you've read the book, sometimes I like to just get through it quickly. I think, man, Lord, don't let this happen to me. What happened to Job? But as you study Job's life, he lost his family. He lost his health. He lost all of his goods, all of his wealth, everything. And if that weren't bad enough, he was surrounded by a group of friends that he called miserable comforters. And they said, Job, we know why you're in the condition you're in, because you're a sinner. And because of this, and this is what happened. If you weren't a sinner, and if you would, and they just heaped upon him. It was like insult after insult upon injury. And Job got to the place where he was so frustrated with his situation, and he lacked information. And he began to question God. Why did this happen? And why was I ever born? And how come this happened? What, I just want to talk to you for a second. God, I wish I had a redeemer so I could go back and forth, and I could present my case. And Job's just talking, talking. talking. And you understand, the guy was hurting. He was suffering. But at the end of all of Job's questions and all of the miserable comforter's speeches, God speaks. And God asked Job some 80 questions, 80 questions from God. And he starts out, Job, where were you when I, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I wasn't there, I don't know. Job, are you able to, can you, uh, no, I, I couldn't, no, I wasn't. I mean, just question after question after question after question. Now the Lord's asking questions. And all of the things that God is asking, Job has no understanding. He doesn't know how to answer these questions. God is revealing, Job, there are things that I'm doing that you could not understand. And what you're going through right now, you don't understand, but I'm still God, I'm still sovereign, and I'm still working these things out for good. And even in the midst of his suffering, there were moments when Job would say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that. I know that when I'm refined, I'm going to come forth as gold. I don't understand everything that's happening, but I know this about you. And so God asks him all these questions. And when it's all done, let me tell you what Job's response is. Job 42, here's what he said. Then Job answered the Lord. He said, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Well, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, what does he say? I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job sat as the judge of God because he had limited understanding. He did not fully understand the purpose and plan of God in his sovereign will. And he struggled with it. But then he came to this place where he realized, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent of that mentality, of that attitude toward you. Thanks for joining us today for A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. You'll find us online at adailywalk.org. That's a good place for resources to help you grow in your daily walk. If you'd like prayer or have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, our email is adailywalk at gmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 877-242-0828. That's 877 242 
1-800-242-0828. To watch today's message again or any message you may have missed in the series, download our free app. Simply search CCSJC. Be sure to stay tuned with Pastor John on Instagram at John P. Randall and on Twitter at PJRandall7. Make sure to join us next time when we'll again open the Word together, seeking to apply God's truth to your daily walk.